0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, let's remain standing and I'll pray for us. We thank you indeed for your word and we thank you that your word does uh, speak clearly to us and ask for you again to do that this morning. Uh, Father, we pray that as you speak to us through your word, we would Uh, hear the word of grace that helps us to own all the wrongs that we've done as we've sung that would help us to deplore our sins and that would help us to look to the saviour who stands holding forth his wounded hands scars which ever cry for me once condemned but now set free and we ask it in his name amen please do sit down Well, again, I add my welcome to that of, uh, of Andrew's uh, earlier in the service. It's uh, very good uh, to have you here, especially if you're uh, a newcomer. Uh, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 5, uh, page 689. We'll, we'll actually start back in chapter 1, uh, but uh, page 689, Isaiah chapter 5. Let me also encourage you to dig out a handout. Um, Whether you like these things or not, there's a couple of quotes on here which will help you to follow as I I refer to them. Uh, I know it's been said uh, many times already, but what a summer of sport it's been. And in the early hours of Tuesday morning, it got even better as Andy Murray won the US Open tennis final. Uh, Because it was, as we all know, 76 years since Fred Perry's last Grand Slam victory, Murray's win was uh, the news... That dominated not only the back pages but also the front pages too. And so, in all the excitement of sport this week, it may just have passed us by that Tuesday marked the 11th anniversary of the 9/11 attacks on the United States of America, attacks that rocked not only the US but the the whole world. Attacks that provoked many people to ask many searching questions. Now let me take you back 11 years. On the Thursday morning after the terrorist attacks. In an interview that took place on the early show on American TV, uh, the show's presenter, Jane Clayson, asked a very searching question of Anne Graham-Lotz, who uh, is Billy Graham's daughter. Jane Clayson said this, I've heard many people say, those who are religious, those who are not, if God is good, how could God let this happen? To that, you say? And lots replied, as I've printed on the handout here. I say God is also angry when he sees something like this. I would say also for several years now, Americans, in a sense, have shaken their fist at God and said, God, we want you out of our schools, our government, our business. We want you out of our marketplace. And God, who is a gentleman, has just quietly backed out of our national and political life, our public life, removing his hand of blessing and protection We need to return to God first of all and say, God, we're sorry we've treated you this way. And we invite you now to come into our national life. We put our trust in you. We have our trust in God on our coins. We need to practice it. As you can imagine, it was an arresting response. we push God out of our lives. We tell him we don't want him meddling in our business. And then we complain when he doesn't protect us. Anne Graham Lotz purportedly went on to say, although I've not been able to verify this this week, uh, but I've heard that she went on to say, we need to make up our minds. Do we want God or do we not want him? We cannot just ask him in when disaster strikes. Well, be under no illusion. If we reject God, it will have monumental consequences. And that's what we see as we turn to Isaiah chapter 5 this week. If you were here last week, you'll remember that as we looked at the first four chapters of the book of Isaiah, we saw how thoroughly rebellious the people of Judah were and how thoroughly corrupt the city of Jerusalem was. They had, as it were, shaken their fist in the face of God and said to God, we want you out of our government, our business, we want you out of our marketplace, and we even want you out of our religious life. i look again just to refresh your memory back to chapter 1 and verse 2. See how the book opens. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they rebelled against me. Look at verse 4. Ah, oh, sinful nation of people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Look over the page to verse 21 of chapter 1. See how the faithful city has become a harlot? She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. And look at chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Judah staggers, Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Now, it is that last line that is really worth noting. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Now, that's what we see in chapter five this morning. Disaster has fallen upon the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, and they have brought it upon themselves. They've rebelled against the Lord. They've forsaken God. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel. They've turned their backs on him, and as a result, they're under the judgment of God. But before we see that in chapter 5, let me remind you of the remarkable thing about the book of Isaiah that we saw last week. This book ends not in judgment, as we might expect after these devastating opening chapters. The book doesn't end in judgment, but in glorious salvation. We saw it last week. It ends in chapter 65 and 66 with God having gathered together a people for himself, a people from all nations, including sinful Judah, And we see at the end of the book how God will place his gathered people in a glorious new creation, a new heavenly Jerusalem, a pure and delightful city. And so this book is full of hope, hope that we find only in the gospel, the gospel that this book is all about, the hope of forgiveness and a fresh start, the hope of cleansing and an end to corruption and evil. It's a wonderful and unexpected hope. It is certainly undeserved It is a hope that comes from the grace of God. But listen, the hope of of living in a glorious new creation can only come about if God purges the world of all its dross and impurities. And he will do that. He must do that, for he is the Holy One of Israel. He will act against evil, and so judgment will come. And that is what we see in Isaiah chapter 5. It's a chapter of of two distinct sections, the first section coming in verses 1 to 7, which leads us to the first point on the handout, a song, uh, verses 1 to 7. You'll see this song is Isaiah's song about his Lord, the one he describes as the one he loves, verse 1. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. It's a song about the creation of a vineyard then and how the Lord lovingly cultivated and cared for a patch of land, making it into a wonderful vineyard. And we see that in verse 1. Look halfway through the verse. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. But it yielded only bad fruit. Isaiah's loved one, the Lord himself, went to such great lengths to plant a wonderful vineyard, but devastatingly, end of verse 2, it yielded only bad fruit or or stink fruit, as Alec Mateer translates it. It's what we saw last week. This is a song about the rebellion of of Israel and Judah. We know that because Isaiah interprets his lyrics for us in verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. So here, this song is all about the Lord making a people for himself. He cared for them, gave them a wonderful land, made them something out of nothing. Like a child being born into an astonishingly privileged position, they had everything. The Lord gave them such a good start in life. They had such a bright future ahead of them But they were wasters and they wasted their lives. The Lord could not find anything good in them, verse 2. They yielded only stink fruit. And see just what a stench the fruit gave off at the end of verse 7. The Lord didn't find justice and righteousness, but do you see it? They had bloodshed and cries of distress. And so in this song, the Lord asked the question in verse 3, now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? The question expects the answer, nothing. They had everything. The Lord could do nothing more for them. And so the Lord asks at the end of verse 4, when I looked for good grapes... Why did it yield only bad? Why did you only produce stink fruit? Why, given all that I did for you, all that I gave you, all that you had to look forward to, why did you only produce bad fruit that is a stench up my nostrils? It beggars belief. And so devastatingly, the Lord responds, verse five, now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Here is the promise of judgment. Remember, this is the judgment that was to come upon Israel and Judah, verse seven. They had shaken their fist in the face of God and said to God, we want you out of our government and our business. We want you out of our marketplace and we even want you out of our religious life. As we saw last week, they'd become corrupt and evil, forgetting the plight of the oppressed and marginalized in society. They wouldn't have started a food bank. The wealthy and the leaders were living it up while injustice and vice was rife. This is all about the house of Israel, verse 7, and the men of Judah, God's chosen people. And because they produced only stink fruit, so here in verses 5 and 6, God promised that he would leave them. Taking away all protection, that's verse 5. Leaving the nation to be trampled down. Leaving the nation to become a wasteland and a desert, as you see in verse 6. Taking away his hand of blessing. You see that there at the end of verse 6. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Here then is the promise of a very specific judgment upon Israel and Judah. And you might remember Jesus told a very similar parable about, parable about a vineyard in, in Mark chapter 12. There's no need to turn to it now but you can look at it later. It was a parable about the, how, the, how corrupt the leaders of, of the vineyard had become and how they rejected the lord here then in isaiah chapter 5 the lord promised that israel and judah would be removed from their privileged position as the people of god and that is what happened just as jesus said in his parable the tenants of the vineyard have been replaced by the international and worldwide christian church of god This then is a very specific parable about Israel and Judah, but here's the thing for this morning. This is the thing to really underline in your mind. If this judgment came upon Israel and Judah, the the nation chosen by God and so loved by him, if this judgment came upon them, then we can be sure that any nation of the world which produces the same stink fruit is sure to come under the same judgment of God. And so while the rest of the chapter tells us more of the detail of Judah's sin, and the judgment to come upon them, as we read it, it also warns of a judgment to come upon a world that has ignored its creator and its God. And so from the song to the, secondly on the handout, the woes and judgments, uh, verses 8 to 30. The the second part of the chapter has a very simple structure. Uh, Verses 8 to 30 contain a series of woes, followed by the promise of judgment, usually introduced by the word therefore. I've put the relevant verses on the handout. I've also noted these, what I think are very helpful words from Barry Webb, as he explains, woe introduces denunciations of particular sins, therefore introduces the judgments which either have been or will be visited on the offender's. Before we look at the woes and judgments, a comment on the word woe. Woe here is a word of lament from the Lord. Each time we read the word woe, we are not hearing a word of condemnatory finger wagging. I'm going to get you for this. That's not it at all. No, behind each woe is a feeling of deep disappointment. As it's read, feel this, this sigh of sadness from a grief stricken God over the sin of his people. God takes no delight in sin or in judgment. It grieves him to see what people have become. And we should feel that every time we we read the word woe. The first woe then, and over the page on the handout, verse eight to 10. Woe to you who had house to house and joined field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Here is the sin of covetousness of accumulating more and more wealth and possessions and especially real estate it sounds very 21st century britain verse 8 graphically explains the problem the wealthy living in larger and larger homes gaining more and more land till no space is left a few wealthy landowners in possession of the majority of the ground it's a sin that will result in the judgment of verses 9 and 10 verse 9 the lord almighty has declared in my hearing surely the great houses will become desolate the fine mansions will be left without occupants a 10 acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine a homer of seed only an ephah of grain you don't have to understand what those units mean to get the point see how the lord feels about this greedy desire for more God has had given his people so much. Remember the song in, verse, in the first seven verses. God was so generous in giving them so much. They didn't need to be greedy. They didn't need to keep accumulating more stuff and bigger houses. They didn't need to keep earning more for themselves to have more for themselves. But of course, that's the problem with wealth accumulation. It's the famous response from a multimillionaire when asked, How much money do you need to make you happy? And he replied, £10,000 more than you have already. When God is not enough for us, we'll be left with an insatiable appetite for more. And it will always leave us lonely. Did you see that at the end of verse 8? We build our huge houses and in the process get further and further away from our neighbours, putting up fences to protect our property and removing ourselves from community. It leaves us lonely. It's a desperate problem. This huge city, half a million people, and people are devastatingly lonely. So hear the agony that this sin causes the Lord woe to you. And see what will happen when judgment comes in verses 9 and 10. In judgment, all this stuff loses its value. Houses become desolate and huge fields produce next to nothing. The first woe then, the sin of covetousness, chasing after the God of materialism. The second woe, the sin of chasing after the God of hedonism. We see this in verses 11 to 17. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Here is uh, the all-absorbing pursuit of pleasure that pushes aside any concern for the lord and his ways and we see as we see at the uh, the in the second half of verse 12 here the living god is exchanged for late night drinking parties for dancing the night away now don't misunderstand god is not a killjoy he's not a great party pooper It's not that the lord is against alcohol or drinking it's just that These people make those things the the thing they live for. And that, of course, results in the excesses that sees us making a mess of life. The problem here is that drinking and partying has become what life is all about. I remember it well when I worked in the newspaper business. Many of the people I, I worked with lived for the weekend which consisted of partying... Asked them on Monday morning if they'd had a good weekend and the highlight was Saturday night on the town. On Monday morning in the office, the stories they told were about the amount they'd drunk. That was the great highlight for them of life. Verses 11 and 12 are remarkably contemporary. Not only in the lifestyle people live, but end of verse 12, in the fact that the Lord and his ways are never considered... And so the judgment comes, verse 13, therefore my people will go into exile. See how the judgment fits with the sin, just as the previous one did. If we live as if we don't want God, then there'll come a time when we will be exiled from God, separated from him for all eternity. It's desperate, but but people don't get this. Really, it breaks my heart when I meet bereaved relatives to plan a funeral. As I sit there in their front room and learn about their loved one, they tell me that he wasn't interested in the Lord. Well, they don't put it like that. They say to me, well, Vicky, he wasn't religious. He didn't go to church. And then when we talk about his hobbies and interests and how he filled his time, it becomes clear he lived for something else. He exchanged God for his garden, his golf, his career, his increase of his wealth, or... A life of drink and parties. Whatever it was, it becomes clear he exchanged God for something. And then they say to me, but he's in a better place now, isn't he, vicar? We just don't get it. We live for something else. Here in verses 11 and 12, it's having a good time drinking and dancing the night away. We live for something else with no regard for the Lord. That's the end of verse 12. And then we expect to be in God's presence when we die. That won't happen, verse 13. Therefore, because of verse 12, therefore my people will go into exile. And this judgment of exile did come upon Israel and Judah. In this very book they became exiled. Taken off by a foreign nation into a foreign land. And as they were taken into exile, they knew the agony of of the end of verse 13. People dying of hunger and thirst. In exile, there were no excesses of food and drink. And you see exile, their exile, exile in the Bible, points to the greater exile to come. The exile that comes to all at death. Look over the page of verse 14. Therefore, the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit, and it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Do you see there, end of verse 15, the arrogance of having no regard for the Lord throughout our lives will produce a devastatingly humble, humbling moment when in death we come face to face with the Lord Almighty. The first woe comes because of materialism, the second because of hedonism. And then we have four woes on the trot, uh, without a word of judgment, verses, uh, woes three to six. Uh, the third woe, verse 18... And nineteen here is the sin of of mocking God, of doubting that God will act, the sin of not believing the Word of God, and particularly not believing in judgment. Look at verse nineteen to those who say, "Let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that we may see it." Isaiah has been warning of, of judgment, but these people don't believe him so verse 19 they cry out in a mocking voice for god to hurry up and come in judgment they use isaiah's title for the holy one of israel for, th- 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 sorry they use isaiah's title for god the holy one of israel not with respect but in a way that taunts isaiah so they say halfway through verse 19 let it approach this day of judgment let it approach let the plan of the holy one of israel come so that we may know it Isaiah, you're speaking of judgment to come. We'll believe it when we see it. Again, it it sounds remarkably contemporary. You'll hear it in the office on Monday morning. I hear it when I speak of God's judgment. People just don't believe it's going to happen and they mock God. And when a society has reached that point, not believing in a judgment to come, everything that is done, is loaded with sin. That's the point, I think, of verse 18. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. This is the point. When you don't believe there's any judgment to come, you can do whatever you like. You think you can get away with murder because there are no ultimate consequences. And so it's as if you've got a cartload of sin attached to you. Wherever you go, sin follows because there's no judgment to come so i can do what i like the fourth woe in verse 20 is the sin of calling evil things good and good evil again it's where we're at in our in our in this nation at the moment stand up for the truth that marriage should be between one man and one woman and the deputy prime minister will be tempted to label you a bigot oh he won't actually say it that would lose him too many votes sorry is that a bit cynical? But do you see what is happening at the highest level? Good is called evil, and evil is called good. And so, in this topsy turvy world, a grief stricken God says, verse 20 Woe! Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And then he adds the fifth woe, verse 21 Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Now, you see, this is exactly where we end up when, when we're living the previous woes, when we've exchanged the one true God for other things, when we've had the nerve to mock God, when we've started to call evil good. When we've reached that point, we begin to think we're so wise, we find ourselves living at a time just like this, when we, when we, mankind, are so wise in our own eyes with our technological advances and scientific advances and medical advances, with our space travel and our understanding of the genome. There's such pride in mankind's achievements. We are, verse 21, wise in our own sight. And then finally, the sixth woe, verse 22 Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. The terms here, champion and heroes, these terms used in verse 22 are usually used to refer to real heroes and genuine champions. Military heroes, people of extraordinary courage who selflessly lay down their lives for others. People we should be looking up to and applauding. So what a desperate state we're in when we call our heroes those who are champion drinkers. What have we come to when we look up to someone because they can down seven, eight, nine pints without falling over? But as fresh-faced students arrived at, the, at uni this week, desperately some of them will soon be aspiring to be like the drinking champions of their halls. And how desperate when a society is full of those who, look at verse 23, acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. That is far too current for comfort with the Hillsborough Independent Panels report released this week. And the revelation of how many police statements were amended The way the police said that a turnstile had been forced by the crowd where, in fact, a gate had been opened by the police themselves. And how 23 years have passed while the Hillsborough family Support Group have been pressing for justice but been denied access to the truth. This week, verse 23, the second half of verse 23 seems far too close for comfort. Now look, while these woes were directed at Judah, these woes leave me with the uncomfortable feeling that our nation is also under the judgment of God. It hasn't been difficult for me to find ways of applying these verses to our nation, as you've just seen, and I could have done it for longer, but I don't have time. So it leaves me with this uncomfortable feeling that our nation is under the judgment of God, a judgment which is spelt out in verses 24 to 30. Listen again to Barry Webb, who helpfully writes, there's a growing intensity as the unit progresses. First one woe, verse 8, then another, verse 11, then four strung together in quick succession. Similarly, there is first a single announcement of judgment introduced by the Lord Almighty has declared in verse 9. Then a double therefore in verses 13 and 14. And finally another in verses 24 and 25 where the judgment takes on cosmic, world-shattering proportions. In verses 24 to 30 then, we learn of the final judgment on the nation. Verse 24, therefore... As tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. It is very clear isn't it judgment comes because they rejected god's law and spurned the word of the holy one of israel it's crystal clear rejecting god's law and his word is is to reject the lord himself and it provokes him to burn with anger this is the lord who is slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness and yet listen to verse 25 therefore the lord's anger burns against his people His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. This verse may speak of a future judgment or it could refer to a judgment that has already begun in Judah. Some suggest this refers to an earthquake an earthquake that happened during the reign of King Uzziah, which is the right time. Amos chapter 1 talks of that earthquake. That would fit with verse 25, the mountain shaking, dead bodies like refuse in the street. Now, whether it's the promise of a future judgment or, or, or for Judah or, or a judgment they'd already experienced, see how terrifying it is to provoke the Lord to anger. And what is even more terrifying is that even after the Lord has raised his hand in judgment at the beginning of verse 25, we read at the end of verse 25, yet for all this his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. And that's why we get verses 26 to 30. The Lord speaks of yet more judgment to come. This time in the form of a foreign nation, it's going to be the world superpower, the Assyrians, coming down in mighty power to completely obliterate Judah, almost. As we read verses 26 to 30, it tells us, That God summons pagan nations to bring utter destruction. It tells us that the Lord is the sovereign Lord over all nations. He can use even foreign pagan nations to accomplish his purposes in bringing judgment upon a rebellious world. Now as we close, let me say again, this is a chapter written to Israel and Judah. They were the vineyard of verses 1 to 7. Verses 8 to 30 is a description of the stink fruit they lived and it tells us of the judgment they would receive. But again here's the thing, if God brought his chosen people under judgment because they rejected him and his word, then we can be sure that any nation who rejects the Lord and lives this way will come under God's judgment. And it hasn't been difficult to see how our nation is full of the very same stink fruit that Judah was. And that is why our nation needs so desperately to hear the message of Isaiah. With the hope it offers at the end of the book. The hope of being part of a a holy people in a glorious new heavenly Jerusalem. A hope that comes through The servant of Isaiah, the servant who features in the second half of the book, but we'll see him popping up, slightly veiled in the early chapters as well. This is the servant who famously in chapter 53 is the solution to the problem of God's burning anger against sin. Turn with me to chapter 53 as we close. Page 740. These famous words, but no less wonderful for it. Isaiah chapter 53, speaking of the suffering servant, verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But... He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Of course, it speaks of Jesus and of his cross. And of the only solution to the disaster that a nation brings upon itself by rejecting the Holy One of Israel. And so as we study the book of Isaiah and see what causes the Lord to burn with anger, we surely in compassion must take the message of the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus, to our nation. Personally inviting our friends and neighbours to hear about the one who took God's anger upon himself. Invite your friends, please invite your friends to the Debbie Flood evening so that they can hear about the Lord Jesus. It means surely we've got to carry on corporately planting churches so that more people will hear this glorious message of Jesus. It means surely we've got to keep training leaders who'll proclaim this wonderful gospel. We've got to keep growing this church, continue the work here in Fullwood. There are people on our doorsteps that are living under this judgment. We've got to keep praying that this nation will hear the glorious gospel of Christ. We've got to keep giving to fund gospel initiatives. And we've got to keep working with all our might to do everything we can to take the message of Jesus to a world which has brought disaster upon itself. Let's pray together. The Lord is slow to anger. And so, our Father, when we hear of your anger burning, and then even when your anger has been shown, your anger still not being turned away, we know that this is terrible. And we ask you to help us to see just how bad sin is in our own lives, that we may rejoice all the more in the Lord Jesus who averted uh, the anger from coming upon us by taking it upon himself, but also in seeing the anger, uh, the anger that you bring upon the sin in this, wor- in this world. And we pray that our response would be with the answer in our hands, the answer of the gospel, that our response would be to proclaim it fervently, yes, sensitively, but with great passion, to a dying world that so needs to know the one answer found through the loving, suffering servant, your son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name.